Hi everybody, welcome to a new episode of the Womanhood and International Relations Podcast. I'm your host, Natalia Buenilla, and for today's episode, we have two very special guests with us. Their names are Alice Rich, Senior Research Policy and Advocacy Advisor, and Liz Jill Atkinson, Research Advisor, both representatives of the International Women's Development Agency in Australia. Alice and Liz, welcome to today's episode. Thanks for having Thanks. us. Yeah, thanks, Michelle. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for this opportunity to engage together in a very rich conversation on feminist foreign policies in Australia as well as in the global south. Um, but before we start, I want to invite our listeners to learn more about the type of work that your incredible organization does. Yeah, sure thing. So IWDA was established in 1985. Um, by three Australian women who really wanted to see a greater focus on women's rights in development and more women in, you know, participating and leading international development efforts. Um, and it was launched at the Third World Conference on Women in Nairobi in 1985. So today we're an Australian-based organisation which resources women's rights organisations in Asia and the Pacific, and we work with global feminist movements to advance our vision of gender equality for all. And so the work that Liz and I do really sits in that second part of the sentence around contributing to global feminist movements through research and advocacy. Um, and we have a framework at IWDA, which um, is called Stepping Up, Standing With and Stepping Back, which we use to sort of help um, put into practice a, a decolonizing mindset. So it's about thinking about you know, where we as an Australian-based organisation, as part of the figurative global north, where we have power to make change, which we should be um, stepping up to do, where we should be standing in solidarity with the aims um, of others and particularly feminist movements in the global south, and then where we really need to step back because it's not our place to lead. And so, yeah, the work that um, we're doing on feminist foreign policy is sort of in that stepping up space. It's a topic that we've identified where we're well-placed to kind of advocate for change um, and, and look at the, the ways in which um, feminist foreign policy has been adopted around the world. That's incredible. I think that we can learn a lot about this conversation on the colonizing mindset, and we will touch upon those topics in a bit. But I want to start our conversation today um, basically acknowledging this report that you released in 2021, From Seeds to Roots, which highlights the trajectories, the lessons, as well as the critiques and debates on uh, the feminist foreign policy models that we have up to date. And I want to start this conversation asking what inspired IWDA to engage in this type of report. Thanks, Natalia. So as, as Alice mentioned before, IWDA uh, works to advance gender equality for all. And we sort of, we knew through our work and through our work with other um, actors in the women's rights movement um, that feminist foreign policies are a potentially powerful strategy to assist in working towards achieving the goal of gender equality. And we also knew the appetite for feminist foreign policy has been increasing since Sweden declared the world's first feminist foreign policy in 2014. So we wanted to know more about how the feminist foreign policies that have been declared to date and at the time of the research, there was five feminist foreign policies um, at, or international assistance policies in total that have been declared. We wanted to know more about how they came about, the factors that enabled their declaration to inform um, our advocacy in Australia in support of an Australian feminist foreign policy being declared, and also to grow the evidence base to support the broader feminist movement in their advocacy towards feminist foreign policies and getting feminist foreign policies declared in other, in other countries. So when we thought about, well, okay, should we do this research and how should we um, focus the research? We did a quick literature review to help us figure out, you know, are there any issues that we don't know quite so much about with feminist foreign policy that we could contribute information in response to. And we found that whilst women's rights organisations in particular and academics are increasingly writing about the goals, the principles, accountability mechanisms and implementation of feminist foreign policies, much less had been written about how they came about and, and why they came about. So for example, across the five countries, it was not well known whether there was common factors that were similar or different in enabling policy declarations to be made across the countries. Um, which factors had been really key, had been more of a driving force, were some factors more critical than others? 
Um, and where did the initial demand for feminist foreign policies come from? Was that from inside government or was it external pressure from civil society? And also, were there any barriers that had to be overcome within government to get these declarations in place? Um, and furthermore, whilst quite a, like there was some information that had been written about Canada and Sweden, not a lot had yet been written about Mexico and France or um, and how their declarations had come to be written, and especially not from the perspectives of feminist foreign policy advocates um, in these countries. So yeah, so to enable us to learn more about these issues and the driving factors that enabled feminist foreign policies to come about, um, we decided to focus our research specifically on this topic and targeted to 29 um, civil society sort of activists um, and academic and government representatives. And this included quite high level government officials, officials in Mexico, Sweden and Canada um, about the processes that they went through to make these commitments. So yeah, so while we focused on the trajectories of how these policy declarations came about, our research, we didn't look at the robustness of the commitments or we haven't focused on assessing their implementation because this would be a much bigger project, which we would love to be involved with at some point, but it is a very different research project. So yeah, so we looked at how these policy declarations came about, what the factors that enabled their declaration um, and the steps that governments took to get the declarations in place and to institutionalize them. So yeah, that's, that's the background to how the research came about. I found very interesting that in your research, you have also uh, noted that many of these models up to recently um, came as a surprise, like this announcement by governments, like let's use the word feminist for either feminist foreign policy model or feminist international assistance policy or program. Um, I want to ask you about this element of surprise because you have also noted in this report the importance of enabling a type of environment for you know, civil society as well as other um, uh, political actors to engage in conversations together instead of waiting for the announcement first and then let's engage in consultations afterwards. Um, can you share a bit about this trend? Yeah, great question, Natalia. So I think what we really found is that, as, as you mentioned, those were two factors. It was around like a really strong, um, high-level political will for a bold policy announcement that often came as a, as a surprise. But what we identified was that there was five critical factors that enabled the declarations to be made and that they were all interrelated and that they were all important for getting declarations in place. So for example, in relation to the surprise announcements, we found that the feminist foreign policies really did require high level political will. Um, and when they came as a surprise, that was often to people working within government as well as civil society, including people in civil society that had participated in consultations for feminist international assistance policies. Um, and in most cases, it was a foreign minister or a prime minister who was going out on a limb and making a bold commitment to a feminist approach. Um, so even though civil society, um, yeah, making a bold commitment to a feminist approach. And so the second key factor was what you said, Natalia, which was around this enabling environment. So even though civil society weren't always explicitly calling for a feminist foreign policy, and were often surprised to hear the labelling of the policy as explicitly feminist, um, by their activism, they really did create a soft landing ground for a progressive gender announcement through, you know, the decades of advocacy that the women's rights our movement has done. And this sort of, you know, the decades of um, work that had been done in the lead up to the announcements was widely acknowledged by both civil society and government representatives as being a really critical factor. And it also really highlights the need for both bottom up and top down pressure to sort of enable um, policy declarations to be made. And the third critical factor that we found was in relation, which I think also connects back to the sort of the surprising um, announcements in the political will was that the announcements were also closely linked to the personal values of the individual making the decision. So for example, you know, whilst within, you know, Mexico has a feminist foreign policy, but there are many challenges for women living in Mexico, including extremely high rates of femicide. And Mexico isn't always viewed as being a particularly progressive country on gender equality domestically. Um, and this was particularly raised in our research by feminist civil society groups in Mexico. However, the Foreign Secretary Marcelo Ebrard um, did hold progressive views um, and has a track record of implementing them when he was within um, as the mayor of Mexico City, which has a number of progressive policies, for example, on marriage equality and abortion rights. So I think 
it was his sort of you know personal views that we heard in the research really in really um influenced the declaration of um a feminist run policy in mexico um, and also, you know, another driver that we found that was critical was in um, the leader having a need for an announceable. So, for example, in the UK, the Labour Party were responding to sexual misconduct scandals in the charity in the charity sector when they declared their feminist international assistance policy when Jeremy Corbyn was in opposition. That was part of their platform. Um, and in France, civil society groups making the connection to the fact that the Me Too movement was putting pressure on political figures which meant government was looking for progressive gender announcements that, that they could make to sort of offset this negative attention. Um, and lastly, the other factor that we found, the fifth factor that sort of connects all this together is that it was really important that countries had an opportunity to make a splash on a global stage at a global event. So for example, Sweden's feminist foreign policy came while they were bidding to sit on the UN Security Council. Um, France, while well, they were hosting the G7, um, and Mexico, what was co-hosting Generation Equality Forum. So I think you can see how these five factors really connect to sort of, you know, create that enabling environment, you get the right person in the right place at the right time, at the right event, who has an announceable they need to make. And all of those factors really came together to enable these declarations. In the case of um, the debates and controversies that you have found as well, I found incredible that you touch upon this because sometimes, you know, as feminists, we may, you know, create a lot of benefits, all the beauty of using a feminist foreign policy, but not see the downsides or perhaps things that we need to work on. And you feature it very um, elegantly, <laughs> very well um, uh, presented. And I wanted to touch base on that because you did talk about the difference of definitions. Um, mm -hmm. That is one issue across the board that we are finding not every government agrees upon what a feminist foreign policy looks like. And I think that's also a reason of concern of many feminist movements locally and internationally, because we are like, if Canada believes that feminism is something and that Mexico uses the word as something else, then, you know, how can we create alignment to the values of what feminism is? And I think there's a fear of, you know, um, diluting the feminist cause because governments can define feminism as they want as other, you know, um, interesting words such as terrorism that also gets, you know, the definition according to each government, right? Um, in that case, how do you find this definition um, issue a debatable question to add to the report? Yeah, Natalia, thanks for bringing that up. It was such an interesting issue to hear raised through pretty much all of the interviews, which was, this idea that civil society and governments have different ideas about feminist foreign policy. They have different definitions. They have diff they conceptualize it differently. Um, and what it was thought across all countries and sectors that civil society has more progressive, evidence-based and best practice ideas about feminist foreign policy than government, which, you know, again, is important for feminist foreign policy in creating that enabling environment and that sort of soft landing space for declarations. Um, but what we found is that this could lead to issues where government and civil society um, undermine efforts to support the uptake of feminist foreign policies um, by creating challenges. And this could include, for example, civil society and government talking past each other instead of to each other because they don't have a shared understanding of the central concept. It could lead to disappointment from civil society when policies do not live up to their expectations. Um, and also disappointment from governments who believe they're enacting progressive policies but are not supported by feminist movements. And so I think a key example of this that came out of the research is the debate about feminism versus militarism and the role of security defense, militarization in foreign policy. Like I think there was very differing views on that, even within sort of, you know, the civil society um, actors that we spoke to. And I think connected to this is that we also looked at the process to go from a declaration of a feminist foreign policy to the policy development process. And we won't go into this in too much detail just because we've you know, got a lot to cover. But um, one thing that came out was that participants spoke about the critical role that civil society played in helping to shape and deepen feminist foreign policy um, after a declaration has been made, how they can contribute towards developing what the policy looks like. Um, and some practical strategies that governments have used to help these policies become institutionalised. And I think as well, when there's differing ideas about feminist foreign policies between civil society and government, 
Um, it could lead to pragmatism about the fact that announcing a feminist foreign policy is, is just the first step. So you get the declaration in place and then what happens next? Um, and so, but as one of our participants from um, France said about France's policy, it's really, you know, if you get the declaration in place, then that is at least, it's a really good first step and then it can contribute to building the policy content afterwards. So what Nicholas said was that France's policy started with something that was labelled with nothing behind it. Of course, it's going in the right direction, but if you want to sum it up, I don't think that France has a, France, has a feminist diplomacy yet. But I think that applies to every advocacy strategy or analysis. You can't go from zero to 100 without intermediary steps. So I think, yeah, what, what we found is that there are differing definitions and ideas about feminist foreign policy, but that advocates would like to see declarations made and in place with understanding that a lot of work can, can happen after the announcement to shape and deepen the policy content and the policy practice. In this sense of government and how they are understanding feminism, um, can you share with us very briefly um, if there's a pattern that we are finding towards the current models that we have of feminist foreign policy of how governments are understanding feminism? Yeah, I'm just thinking about that. We didn't do a deep analysis of the policies themselves in the research because we were looking more at sort of the political process to getting them adopted. I mean, I think, you know, yeah, there, there are certainly some com common elements across them. I mean, a lot of them sort of tie back to international frameworks. A lot of them use human rights language. Um, I think, you know, I think there's always a risk that um, feminist foreign policy becomes equated with women's leadership, which, you know, we know women's leadership is important. Obviously, we need women should have equal access to leadership. That should go without saying but it's certainly not sufficient to see a feminist approach. And so I think, you know, I, I, I wouldn't go as far as to say this is the basis of all the policies, but certainly in the way they're talked about, the way they're understood internationally, I think that is a big risk that they become seen as, um, uh, as being just about women's leadership. It's just about having a women foreign minister, having women diplomats. And, you know, we, there's many, many examples um, from history and the present of women who hold leadership roles and don't practice feminist values and don't make progressive change for women's rights. So yeah, I mean, I think that that's sort of a key difference between, you know, what civil society who are pushing for feminist policies um, are wanting to see and then sometimes how that gets interpreted. And I think perhaps also like the notion of gender equality, I think it's also like a conversation tied to the human rights law and, and language that they're using and, you know, these protocols and um, the, the framework of the United Nations as, you know, the progressive sustainable development goals and gender equality is norm and all that, you know, vision of the future for 2030 or you know, in the next years. Um, but we are finding as well other um, controversies. And I want to expand a bit more, Lise, on this um, effectiveness <laughs> of calling the foreign policy feminist. Um, can you share with us if that's effective for, from what you're uh, researching about? Yeah, Natalia, and again, this was a really interesting theme that came up in the interviews, um, and most participants had something to say about this, and they all had very different views about the pros and cons of using the word feminist in a foreign policy. So some participants believe that policies did not need to be labelled feminist if the policy content and practice are strong on gender equality, because it's the content that matters, not the name. If you have a strong policy content in place, it shouldn't matter what it's called. Um, but others believed that um, a feminist foreign policy might be, could be like an important um, type of policy for some, but not all countries. For example, one participant said, you know, it's great that we have a Sweden, but does every country need to be a Sweden and have a feminist foreign policy like Sweden does? So perhaps that a mix of strategies might be more effective in terms of what policies are called. Um, but other participants felt that calling feminist foreign, branding foreign policies as feminist was really important as this feminist rhetoric could be politically appealing to governments and also a way to hold governments to account to their policy commitments. Um, so in terms of where we landed in this, it's sort of, you know, what really is in the name? How important is the name? 
So for IWDA, like these research finders really, you know, it helped us to think through what our position is on whether a feminist foreign policy should be called feminist. Um, and we do think that the labelling the policy is an integral part of the policy process because it's help, it helps to sort of set the vision for the policy and it sends a really strong message to the foreign policy bureaucracy and the broader sector about what the policy is aiming to do. Um, ultimately, I think, you know, we believe that feminism is about deep normative change and transformation of systems of power. As Alice said, it's not just about women's leadership, it really is about transforming the systems and structures that enable foreign policy. Um, and these are politically challenging and ambitious goals. Um, but we think that, you know, transformative change requires bold action and labelling policies as feminist. It sort of demonstrates the boldness required to succeed. So we think it can be an effective tool to elevate the discussion and elevate the conversation and the work required um, to implement, you know, truly feminist structural change um, towards gender equality. But yeah, but definitely, I think, Natalia, this is one example of those, you know, there are many debates within feminist foreign policy and a lot of people have very different points of view about it. And, and it is a really interesting um, yeah, discussion to sort of to see continued in feminist foreign policy places. So yeah, it's a very interesting one. Yeah, and I think more in, at this time because um, we are seeing across the world a rising in authoritarianism and nuclear um, threats <laughs> in different parts of the world. And I wonder, as you were uh, explaining with us, um, whether that would play a part in perhaps some countries wanting to engage in feminist foreign policy, but fearing that using the word feminist will be controversial because we are seeing so much backlash against, you know, not only feminist foreign policy models, but also against women over across the world. Um, so um, if anybody's listening, perhaps some policymaker or researcher on this issue, worrying that, you know, the labeling part, which is important, may be um, difficult at this time, um, what would you say to? I mean, I think it's a really important consideration. Um, and I think there's there's a few different types of backlash that can happen. And I think some of them are more important than others. So one form of backlash that um, uh, political actors always worry about is sort of the, the political backlash that they could experience. So, you know, it's um feminism is uh you know still very associated with kind of left-wing progressive movements and that can be politically disadvantageous for um particular actors they can be you know concerned about in australia talk back radio is always the the space where um good ideas go to die so there's always the worry about you know how's it going to play out on talk back radio um you know so i think that there's that kind of political backlash people are worried about um, you know, in our advocacy, we've really tried to emphasize that that backlash isn't as, it's not as big um, as people assume. And it's not super important. I think all the, everything we know about progressive advocacy really indicates that you need to talk to your supporters and the movable middle and not worry about the backlash um, in a political sense. So, you know, I think that there's that kind of backlash, which I think gets a bit overplayed what you're sort of speaking about the um the risk i guess that uh countries certain countries taking feminist foreign policies and going out really strongly on women's rights could feed that backlash that's already happening to women's rights so it it, it creates something for um countries governments uh actors which oppose women's rights to sort of push back against and i think that is a real risk and something that needs to be managed you know certainly the it wouldn't be a good outcome if having feminist foreign policies created more backlash against women's rights. Um, but I think there's a few different angles on that. I mean, the backlash is happening anyway. And, you know, I think sometimes we, um, we devalue the normative power of these kinds of bold statements. So actually having countries which say, no, feminist values are important, women's rights are important and non-negotiable, it, it's part of setting that sort of um, uh, global standard for, for what's acceptable. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, that there's certainly different types of backlash um, that, that can happen. And I think, you know, I think there are really um, effective ways to manage them. 
The other sort of backlash that we've um, come across or, you know, a concern that we've come across in this work is the, the idea that feminism can be seen as a Western agenda. Um, and so the challenge for um, governments who have feminist foreign policies or are considering them in going into parts of the world where, yeah, feminism is really seen as a Western agenda. It's seen as incompatible with local culture. It's not viewed particularly kindly. You know, and I think that that's, again, that's a really important consideration. It kind of goes to this um, concern about uh, FFP being a, a neo-colonial concept and, and, you know, the way that different countries interact, you know, but I think that there's, there's definitely ways to manage it. And, you know, the first is that there is feminist civil society in every country in the world. And, you know, we can really take a lead from those um, movements in how they talk about women's rights in their context. You know, IWDA works with um, really great organisations in different parts of Asia and the Pacific who, you know, they're navigating really different levels of, um, of comfort with feminism as a concept in those countries. And, you know, they have really smart ways that they... Um, that they work around that. So they talk maybe about human rights or they talk about women's safety or they talk about women and girls. So they, you know, they use different strategies um, to progress the issue kind of, um, of, you know, and progress feminist values while navigating the fact that it might be a, a challenging concept in some of those countries. So I think there are really, you know, there's definitely ways that you can kind of manage that, um, that concern. I'm glad you touch upon that topic of the Western agenda because um, I think that's also something in the global South that is very like critical uh, for us as feminists, as activists and people working and researching on this topic, which is the conversation on how these uh, FFP models that we currently have uh, announced, that are currently announced and are perhaps focusing too much on development and aid rather than on defense and trade, which are also parts of uh, a foreign policy of each uh, modern state. And somehow this development is towards the women of the global South. They need our help. They need help you know, for gender equality, for women's economic empowerment, to you know, alleviate poverty or climate change and all that sounds good, quote unquote. But then you know, we have this fear and uh, evidence in some cases of colonial practices taking place. And based on your research at this point, of course, you focus more on the trajectories and the uh, political motivations for the announcement of FFPs. And has there been any indication of a colonial practice perhaps taking place? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, you know, we, we haven't seen research either way, really, to indicate that. I think there is a really big gap in terms of um, independent evaluations of how feminist foreign policies um, are playing out, how they're being implemented, um, what impact that is happening. And, you know, I think that's something we really need to see more of, particularly, you know, a work that centres the voices of Global South women, because, you know, ultimately, I think that's what... Um, that's the real litmus test of feminist foreign policy is how is it being received in other parts of the world? Um, and how, you know, is it, is it responsive to the priorities of global South women? So I think that is a really big gap in the research. Um, you know, in terms of kind of taking a decolonial approach to feminist foreign policy, um, I just wanna mention some um, work that's been happening in the Australian context that's really influenced our thinking on this. So, um, James Blackwell and Julie Ballingari, who are both First Nations people and members of the coalition that um, we'll speak to you about shortly that we've been um, uh, working with on feminist foreign policy here in Australia. But they've, um, they've just written a paper for a series that we're doing, um, uh, looking at uh, the ways in which an Australian feminist foreign policy would need to both grapple with the history and present state of colonization of Australia. You know, Australia is a settler colonial state and there is no treaty with um, Indigenous people. There's very poor representation um, uh, and voice for Indigenous people in Australia. It's a, um, a huge uh, justice issue and, you know, something that they really argue needs to be addressed 
um, in order for a, a feminist foreign policy to have any legitimacy in Australia. Um, but they also sort of talk about um, the way in which uh, foreign policy can learn from First Nations approaches to foreign policy. So something that really stood out to me in their arguments um, and which sort of showed up a, I guess, colonial mindset that I had, they point out that um, First Nations in Australia were conducting foreign policy for over 60,000 years, which if you, you know, compare that to sort of the Westphalian system, that's less than 400 years old, you know, it's, it's so much rich history and learning of, you know, hundreds of sovereign nations um, across Australia, the Australian continent, but also with sort of neighbouring um, countries and islands, conducting trade, navigating peace and conflict, you know, over tens of thousands of years. And so, um, you know, they sort of point out the, the principles and Indigenous worldviews that have emerged from that really rich history is something that, um, you know, should be really deeply integrated into an Australian foreign policy and not sort of just in an extractive way, pulling out the parts that we like and fitting them into our own framework, but really challenging, you know, our, our approach to foreign policy and the kind of um, worldview that we're operating under. So, yeah, I, th I think that sort of, um, anyway, it kind of just ties back to the point about decolonizing foreign policy. I think that it's, um, it's certainly something that's really been influencing our thinking and, um, yeah, really lucky to be benefiting from, from that work. I was going to say, can I just add something onto that as well, which is around, um, you know, we've observed that some of the latest FFP declarations have really moved out of the transatlantic space, so Mexico, Libya and Chile, and it will be really interesting to see where this starts to shift perceptions of what feminist foreign policy looks like, what kind of countries have feminist foreign policies, especially as more countries in the global south adopt feminist foreign policies um, that will sort of, you know, um, uh, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? That will basically influence how they interact with other countries in the global south. So I think it'll be really interesting to keep paying attention to shifts in in feminist foreign policy in terms of what we understand, what it looks like now, and what it might look like in practice elsewhere. So um, I love that in your uh, report from Seeds to Roots, we are going to list it down below in the description box. You did share about the future trajectories of existing FFPs and FI. APs, as well as future trajectories for new foreign policy, uh, feminist foreign policy models. Um, can you share with us uh, very quickly these lessons and we are going to get into Australia in a bit. Thanks so much, Natalia. Um, so I guess, yeah, so uh, yeah, another key area of the research that we covered in the report was around um, what do future trajectories for existing declarations look like and what factors could influence future tra trajectories for new um, feminist foreign policies. So what we found really interesting is that as it relates to both new and existing feminist foreign policies, that the COVID-19 pandemic has really had an impact on the implementation of existing declarations and on whether and on what participants thought would be the possibility of new declarations being um, taken up. So as part of this, a lot of the participants reported that they thought that feminist foreign policy can sometimes be seen as an approach to pursue, you know, when the sun is shining, when things are good. And I think that goes back to your previous question as well about in times of increasing militarization and uh, increasing right-wing extremism, you know, what are some of the thoughts around um, feminist approaches to foreign policy and their effectiveness in these contexts? Um, and that there would be a risk of governments falling back on old ways of doing things when the going gets tough. But on the flip side of that, other participants said that this is really, this is the opportunity, like this is the transformative point um, at which governments could embrace the potential feminist foreign policy by acknowledging that old approaches never worked for the most marginalised. So I think a lot of the participants viewed, you know, basically saw that the world, that there is a huge opportunity for reset, both through the pandemic and both through climate change and that there are new issues you know that the world is experiencing that we haven't experienced in this way before and that actually we shouldn't fall back on old policy approaches we should be adopting new transformative approaches that you know to address these issues so I think yeah it was interesting how thoughts about COVID-19 led to broader discussions about you know this is an opportunity for a reset and feminist foreign policy could be a really effective tool um, 
you know, to support governments to respond to the issues facing our society now. So I wanted to um, ask you in the sense of the, the existing FFPs and FIAPs, <laughs> um, specifically um, the future of these ones, because there's a concern or a worry by feminist movements and civil society actors that after a specific term of the current administration that announced FFPs, um, if there's another political party that rises into power, FFP models will be like tossed out the window. Um, I like that in your report, you did um, mention the need for institutionalization, I think that's the word, of FFPs, like part of the state. Um, but I don't know if that's like something that you found for the global south or across the board that is a need. I think what we what we found through the research was that in the countries where civil society had been engaged by government to support the process of institutionalizing feminist foreign policies within government, that the policies. Yeah, so I think so, yeah, where civil society was brought in to support the process and where government put in implemented a range of strategies, often by, with, in partnership with civil society, to imp implement, um, sorry, to institutionalise the policies that they were more likely to take root within the government, because where governments implemented strategies, and this was reported within Mexico, within Sweden, and I think within Canada, um, where government really took the time to work with all different foreign policy departments and sort of different roles um, and decision makers across the different departments to allow them to have ownership of you know their area of the foreign policy and to really think through the implications of a feminist approach of their work that this really helped to strengthen the institutionalization of um, feminist foreign policies so yeah and a range of strategies were highlighted around bringing civil society and government together i mean what we've spoken about in this interview is that both government and civil society thought that civil society had more progressive feminist ideas about feminist foreign policy. So bringing them together with, um, you know, people working in government to sort of, you know, share ideas about what feminist foreign policy could look like. So yeah, there were a range of strategies that were highlighted that helped to um, get the feminist foreign policies in place in government. And I remember there was a really interesting example um, from Sweden, which speaks to your question, Natalia, about, you know, if one political group, you know, declares a feminist foreign policy and then they leave power, where um, Concord, which is the platform for gender equality, NGO platform for gender equality in Sweden, I think I might not have that quite right, but I think that's what they're called. Um, they held an event where they got a political, a representative from each political party in the lead up to the election to come and to speak about their vision for a feminist foreign policy as well with the assumption that, you know, the feminist foreign policy is in place and it will continue regardless of who is, who is in power. So I think in our research, we heard about some really um, interesting and exciting ways of helping um, governments see the value of continuing these declarations and strategies to sort of see these declarations be implemented within government. So, yeah. I love that you explore this uh, deeper because I think that people perhaps may lose track that this is still a very novel concept like it's only been like six seven years since the first announcement so it's gonna take time to see the the good the bad the, the critiques mm -hmm. the lessons to be learned and we are on the way we are um, exploring and learning around along the road um, on that sense I like that your organization has already convened an Australian Feminist Foreign Policy Coalition. Can you share with us a bit about why is this important? Why now? And what's happening in Australia? <laughs> yeah, so I might start with um, that context first, because I know you have an international audience listening. So um, yeah, I'll start with sort of some context on Australia and our place in international relations and circle back to the coalition that we've set up. Um, so I was trying to think through how to how to best convey this, and I really think Australia's approach to international relations is really full of contradictions. So, you know, we're a middle power; we're not a huge country, um, but we're very invested nationally in the idea that we punch above our weight. You know, we play a bigger role in 
global politics than our size would suggest. Um, we're very geographically distant from, you know, UK, Europe, North America. We're geographically located in um, the Pacific, in Asia. And we sort of swing back and forth from thinking of ourselves as, you know, essentially an extension of Europe and the UK, or sometimes we talk about ourselves as part of Asia, part of, you know, we talk, it's, there's an election on at the moment, and we've heard the phrase, our Pacific family, maybe a record-breaking number of times this election campaign. So, you know, it really, we really swing back and forth between that kind of colonial um, ties to the UK and Europe, and then wanting to see ourselves as part of the region where we're geographically located. Um, yeah, we've had the same party. I mentioned there's an election um, coming up in a couple of weeks' time. So we've had the same political party in government since 2013, which is sort of centre-right conservative party. Um, however, both the foreign ministers that um, we've had over the, the past, gosh, nine years now, um, they've been women. They've been very um, focused on gender equality in their portfolios. The current foreign minister is a stated feminist um, and she, you know, uh, makes gender equality issues um, a focus of all her diplomatic engagements. So, yeah, and then within the development program, we've we've had a really strong focus on gender. I, you know, I have some critiques. We, we look at it pretty closely. There's many areas where we should be doing a whole lot better, but there is like a strong foundation to build on. Um, so, yeah, I think that's sort of the context um, that, we're, that we're operating in. Yeah, as you mentioned, last year we launched the Australian Feminist Foreign Policy Coalition, which is a group that brings together supporters of FFP who are working across foreign policy, women's rights, development, defence, you know, migration, climate change kind of related sectors. And the aim of that is to you know, we're really trying to take seriously the evidence that, you know, we've generated on what has worked in other contexts, what, what have been those factors that have enabled the declaration of feminist foreign policies and, you know, what can we be doing to um, kind of bring, you know, help uh, bring those factors to life in Australia in a way that, you know, might lead to the declaration of a feminist foreign policy here. So, you know, part of the the purpose of the coalition is to really demonstrate that supporter base and try to create a soft landing ground where, a, you know, a surprise announcement could come and really be backed in and welcomed by civil society. So an, another, another part of what we've been doing is trying to transform the discourse on um, feminist foreign policy. So really bringing it from uh, something that's a bit of a fringe idea in foreign policy circles more into the mainstream debate. So, you know, not necessarily, not the talkback radio, as I mentioned, not necessarily the, um, the everyday debate, but certainly in terms of the foreign policy circles, we're hoping to see it, um, yeah, become a much more common part of that debate in a way that really makes it seem like a realistic proposition um, to political actors. So not just sort of a really completely out of the box idea that's a total wild card, but something that's taken seriously that, you know, that, that has critiques. I think that's part of the sign of a mature policy debate is that an issue can be critiqued and can stand up to differences of opinion and, um, uh, you know, people pointing out where it's falling short of its own ideals. So that's sort of the work that we're trying to do um, through that coalition. It's really, yeah, transforming the discourse around feminist foreign policy. You mentioned earlier about the First Nations in Australia and how they perhaps, you know, through the colonial conversation may have already engaged in foreign policy. In this coalition for an Australia feminist foreign policy uh, model, uh, have there been any representatives from uh, First Nations and Indigenous movements and what are perhaps their uh, focus? Do they have different focus than perhaps mm -hmm. feminist movements or yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So I, I would say it's really an emerging area um, in the Australian Feminist Foreign Policy Coalition. Um, I mentioned before James Blackwell and Julie Balangari, who are both First Nations people, um, have joined that group and, you know, I, I think have really been challenging us and pushing us to, um, you know, really centre First Nations voices in this work. And I would say that's true of sort of all um feminist and, and social justice uh, issues in Australia is that there's, um, 
you know, I don't want to make a judgment on whether or not we're doing it sufficiently because it's not my place to make that judgment. But I do think that there is an increased focus and an increased recognition that um, of the need to really center First Nations voices. Um, and I think that's tricky because, uh, you know, for many First Nations people, feminism isn't their primary goal, you know. Uh, many Indigenous women see their indigeneity as being a more central part of their identity and feel more strongly connected to um, to that part of themselves than to um, being a woman and, and have felt really excluded from feminist movements. There's um, a really important um, piece of work, which is called Talking Up to the White Woman um, by Eileen Morton Robinson, which was really about uh, you know, critiquing feminism from an Indigenous point of view and, and talking about the ways that, you know, feminism and really white feminism in Australia had really failed to, um, to include the voices of Indigenous women. So, you know, again, I, it's not my place to judge the progress we've made on that, but I certainly see an increased focus on it. And it's really something that we've, um, that we've you know, tried to do with this work and that we want to continue to do more of. I have three last questions before we end this interview, um, two related to FFPs. Um, the possibility that this uh, feminist foreign policy model in Australia may be announced soon with this uh, coalition support and you know, per perhaps a political will by um, leaders at this point um, may be uh, clashing with some of the security uh, issues that your current administration is engaging on. We have received uh, the news last September 2021 of the AUKUS Pact, which is a security agreement be between Australia, United Kingdom, and the United States to buy some nuclear-powered submarines um, to create a long-lasting security for the Indo-Pacific region and perhaps counteract um, China, the, the China's influence. I mean, that's like the vision. One of the main critiques of feminist foreign policy models since Sweden started with the FFP was the factor of defense, of how is it possible that countries that want to engage in FFP, suddenly they don't, you know, uh, put the money where the mouth is in terms of defense, which is uh, another topic that you also talked about from Seeds to Roots on militarism and feminism. I'm doing a lot of rounds just to ask this question of how would an Australia feminist foreign policy model in the future, perhaps we'll deal with these type of, you know, international security issues. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think the AUKUS deal is a really um, illustrative example of how our current foreign policy approach is really letting us down and, and causing a lot of headaches for Australia. So, yeah, as you mentioned, part of the AUKUS deal was um, uh, a contract for nuclear propelled submarines. Um, Australia already had a contract for um submarines with France, which we cancelled very unceremoniously in order to enter this AUKUS deal. Um, and it was a massive diplomatic incident. You know, we there were text messages between our Prime Minister Scott Morrison and Emmanuel Macron were leaked. Macron accused Scott Morrison of being a liar in a um, very famous sound clip from um, an international meeting last year, which I can't remember which one it was, but you know that they, they, France recalled its ambassador to Australia. Like it was a really huge diplomatic blunder. We also failed to inform, you know, Indonesia, countries in the Pacific, you know, uh, countries that, um, you know, again, I mentioned this sort of pull towards Europe and the U.S. that Australia. Um, is really present in Australian foreign policy. And, you know, because of that pull, because we're just thinking about AUKUS, about the UK, US, this great partnership, you know, really failing to do um, the diplomatic work with our near neighbours who also, you know, are concerned about China's presence in the region and, you know, maybe take a slightly different perspective than us or are a bit more pragmatic. Many of them are also concerned about um, the presence of the US in the region and the history of nuclear testing that um, happened in the Pacific, uh, you know, including by France. So, you know, there's a lot of complexities, but um, 
you know, and what I think it really comes down to is um, when we look at security only through this really narrow lens of defense capability, you know, when we think that's the only thing that's important to our security, then we're missing all these additional pieces. So our relationships with countries all around the world, but particularly in our region, are really important to our security. You know, the human security of people in our region that, you know, people having their everyday needs met is a really important factor in broader peace and security. And gender equality, we know from the international research, is one of the most important predictors of peace. And so, you know, failing to prioritise these other aspects of security because we just have this really narrow mindset, I, I think is, is really leading us astray. And it's something that feminist foreign policy could really open up um, a lot of different angles for us and give us a much more comprehensive view of what security looks like. Yeah, definitely. I think that FFPs as well as the WPS agenda is bringing focus on human security as the same level as international mm. security, not under international security. And, you know, perhaps at some point we will see feminist foreign policies being implemented, showcasing that type of, you know, priority. Um, in that sense, I would like to end this interview asking you about this enabling environment that you're creating, because I found that incredibly interesting that you're actually using these type of words. And I know that feminists out there that are perhaps listening to this podcast may feel inspired to know how to create or to enable an environment where the soft landing on a, of an FFP may occur at some point. So can you share with us some pointers about your journey and as well as any upcoming events, reports, release of your organization that we do know about? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, um, I think that work of transforming the discourse has been really central to our thinking about this. And I think, you know, often when we think about advocacy, we just think about meetings with politicians, you know, it's just the direct lobbying, you know, maybe it's a petition. It's sort of that, you know, traditional lobbying and campaigning work. But I think um, using this, this idea of transformative discourse has really um, helped us to expand our thinking on what advocacy can look like. Um, and so that sort of work of, um, yeah, it just getting the idea out into the world, encouraging people to talk about it, making sure that it's not just, it's not just one voice, it's not sort of a um, really superficial yay feminism kind of um uh you know kind of message it's 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 being taken seriously it's being critiqued from different angles it's being um tested really you know seeing if it stands up to scrutiny that's sort of been a really central part of um of what we've been doing is is you know kind of um yeah trying to bring it into the into the debate more and more so that it's seen as a realistic policy proposition and then you know of course we have been doing those conversations as well with political leaders um, directly to understand, you know, where are they sitting on this issue now? You know, how do they respond to the idea of feminist foreign policy? What are the kinds of questions they're coming up with? What are the, the concerns or, you know, what can we gather from what they're, how they're responding to us about the reasons that they feel that it's not, the time isn't right? You know, what, what are the barriers that they're seeing? And, you know, trying to get a better understanding of that so that we can um, continue that work of sort of helping to make it something that's politically feasible. And I think that's, you know, it's important as well because we talked about the need to institutionalise it over time, make sure that it can withstand changes of government. Um, and I think that, you know, the... It, I don't think this is necessarily true on every issue, but certainly I think sometimes it, it can be better to wait until um, the time is ripe for, um, for something to come about um, because it's, it, it may help it uh, have a longer life into the future. Um, whereas, you know, that, that issue of backlash that we talked about earlier, if something comes you know, really before people are ready for it, you can see a greater backlash and 
and therefore it can be more short-lived. So, you know, I don't think it's true on every issue, particularly where people's immediate rights are at stake. You know, I think that can be a, um, a harmful argument. But I feel like on something like this, it's, you know, we're building up the, um, the conditions and then hopefully when, um, if and when we see an announcement of feminist foreign policy, it's something that can be a bit here to stay. But I might throw to Liz to talk about what we've got coming up. Yeah, excellent. And I was, I was just going to, um, yeah, so in terms of that, we have um, part of the way that the coalition and coalition members are working to sort of, you know, create that soft landing ground, as Alice said, is about just, you know, getting messages out there about feminist foreign policy, about what it would mean for Australia's response to certain issues, as a way of just like, you know, sharpening ideas about feminist foreign policy. So we're doing this through a series of issue papers, and the aim is that we will have an issue paper released on you know, a roughly a monthly basis. Um, last week, we released our first issue paper through the coalition, which was by the two coalition members that Alice has, whose work Alice has already spoken about, um, James Blackwell and Julie Ballangarine, and their paper focused on Indigenous diplomacy. And it, it was a really, like, in-depth overview of um, and discussion about some of the points that Alice has raised in the interview about the connections between First Nations um, worldviews and foreign policy approaches and feminist foreign policy approaches. Um, we'll soon be releasing the second issue paper in the series that will focus on gendering the Indo-Pacific dialogue um, and opportunities for India and Australia. And that's authored by Priyanka uh, Bide and Aditi Mukund from the Kubernine Initiative, who we understand you've already interviewed on the podcast. Yeah, um, and so we, yeah, yeah, so we'll, and we'll be releasing one of these papers um, monthly and we also have a newsletter and in that newsletter we try and use it as a place to like um, bring up topics about feminist foreign policy so just as a way of introducing people who might who might be relatively new to the topic to you know key ideas within the feminist foreign policy debates um, and also as a way of um, sharing the work that, you know, IWDA and all the other coalition members have been up to. So events that they've been speaking at, you know, books or articles or blogs that they've written. Um, so if anyone would like to sign up to the newsletter or have a look at our issues papers, you can visit our, um, the coalition website, which is iwda.org.au slash Australian Oh, actually, you know what? I can Google Australian Feminist Foreign Policy Coalition and that will take you to the website. It might, yeah. be, it might be an easier way of getting to the website. We will feature uh, down below on the description box all the links related to this episode. So everybody check all oh, the, the, the box. Um, but I wanted to thank you so much for your time, for your passion towards this topic and for sharing these tips as well for all of us in the global south or in different parts of the world that you know are thinking how to and seeing that there are many ways that we can engage i thank you so much for sharing all this thank you so much for having us natalia this has been um yeah really fun and um really appreciate you sharing the space with us and um having us on your podcast yeah, exactly what Alice said. It's been great. Thank you so much, Natalia. Really, really great questions and really wonderful to have this discussion. That's it for today's episode. Alice and Liz, thank you so much for your time and for this possibility with the IWDA to continue learning more about FFP's research and work and how important this is at this time. I'm also very appreciative of all the students, all the researchers that have reached out on our email as well as our, on, on our Instagram, basically sharing your different research topics for university as well as think tank levels. Um, talking about uh, feminist foreign policy and engaging us and encouraging us to continue doing these type of interviews. Thank you all for your support and thank you so much for your ideas and your encouragement. We will continue learning more and continue interviewing about this on a further episode. I also want to share with you that we already have two online courses on Hotmart that are completely available for you to check it out. We have the Feminist Theory in International Relations Masterclass as well as the Feminisms and Foreign Policy Workshop. We will link down below on the description box all the details for you to check it out. And remember, you can follow us on social media at Instagram as well as Twitter at womenhood underscore IR. There you can 
can share with us your feedback, any ideas, questions regarding these different episodes and interviews. We are also available on LinkedIn and we have a Telegram channel. So, uh, we are spreading uh, across different social media networks. As you know, there are many things happening in the big tech space and we want to continue having this conversation and connection with you. And lastly, if you want to support the growth of this podcast, you can become a patron. With just $5 per month, you can help us support the growth of this platform and provide economic opportunities to female collaborators in different parts of the world. We definitely appreciate your support at this time and thank you so much for tuning in. Talk to you soon.